Our reading today is from Romans 9, 30, verses, verses 30 through chapter 10, verses 4. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Father, we thank you for this day where we get to celebrate your, your son's resurrection and we get to come together as a community of saints and celebrate in the fact that we who were once dead in our sin are now brought to life. You pulled us out of the grave and you breathed life into us and now we can serve you. Father, we thank you that as your son sat, suffered on the cross, we too can suffer in the likeness of him and rejoice in the fact that we have this opportunity to be like your son and serve others. Father, I pray that as we go throughout this week, we would share the joy that we have, the joy and the peace that we have, even in the midst of our suffering, because we know that we are saved. We have eternal life. Father, I pray that we would share that with the world. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Happy Easter. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors uh, here this morning. Uh, we've got a couple of the other ones running around in, in the back here. Uh, we appreciate you guys being here to worship with us. Uh, I see a lot of new faces, uh, a lot of parents here to visit uh, your, your children who uh, have called our church their home while they're at the University of Florida. I appreciate you guys visiting with us this morning uh, as well. Um, if if, if t- this morning is your first time and you didn't get a chance to stop by the, uh, the welcome uh, desk out in the uh, lobby, please feel free to do that. We have a gift for you. Uh, we'd love to connect with you and give you guys uh, just a, a little bit of information about ways to get plugged in here, get, in, get involved, uh, what, we're, what we're doing, things that the Lord is using us to do as far as ministry here in the city and around the world. Um, so feel free to stop by the, uh, the welcome desk after, uh, after service today. Um, but if I can just sum up really quickly why we're here this morning, uh, I can do it with one word, Jesus. Right, that, that is it. Like people ask all the time, like it's really, it's, it's a lot of fun being in a college town because our church is constantly just rotating year after year after year with new faces and, and new, new people and, and whatever else is going on. And I get this question from, from freshmen a, a lot. It's like, what makes Aletheia different than other churches? And, and first of all, I always wanna say like churches shouldn't be that different from one another because they should be about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And if they're not about that, then there's a problem right there. But if you wanna know what we're about, we're about Jesus. We think he's the best because he is the best. And we're here this morning to celebrate the fact that even though 
right? Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead because he's God in the flesh. And as he submitted himself to the Father's perfect will, he was raised to new life to offer us new life, to offer us victory, to offer us hope, to offer us a future that none of us could manufacture on our own. And so you may have found it interesting that it's like, if you come to an Easter service somewhere, typically you're going to get some famous passage out of the end of the book of of Mark or Matthew talking about the resurrection, right? The the ladies go to the tomb on Easter morning and they celebrate because Jesus isn't there and the angels proclaim that he's risen. And then you come here this morning and it's Romans 9. And you're like, what? And the the reason for that is because here at Aletheia, what we do is we study the books of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line by line. And chapter 9 happens to be where we are. But One of the great things about God's word is it's always going to point us back to where we need to go, which is Jesus. It's always going to point us back to our need for him, our our longing for restoration and what God is doing. And so to catch some of you guys up to speed, because we've been going through the book of Romans since sometime in mid-August, what we've seen is this. Right, Paul starts out his letter to the church at Rome as saying, hey, listen guys, God is creator. And God has made all things. So you know, if you want to look at the laws of science, you want to look at the ways that the, the planets revolve around the sun, the seasons, the way that, that life operates within different biospheres, all these different things, right? We would say that God set all of that in motion. And in that creation, God gave mankind this unique position, that he gave mankind this unique position with authority to rule and have dominion over creation in his image and likeness. And that man very early on transgressed from that design and that original intention of creation all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And so Paul, in his first two or three chapters of this letter to the church at Rome, has just been saying this. God created man uniquely, and man squandered that design with sin and rebellion. That mankind, in their stiff-necked, prideful attitude, looks to the God of the universe and says, I don't need you. I'm smart enough. I've got this on my own. And a quick observation of life around us will confirm that. American politics, European politics, world politics, right? The quest for medicine, our quest for technology is a constant, right? Just declaration from mankind claiming, we've got this. We know it all. We don't need God. We can figure this thing out. And we see this over and over again. And Paul says that in mankind's rejection of God, God gave man over to himself. That he gave man over to his sinfulness, his lusts, his passions, and his desires. And out of that comes all sorts of wickedness. And in that wickedness, wrath awaits the entire human race from God. Right? Happy Sunday, right? Like that wrath awaits all of us. And then he moves in to the end of Romans chapter 3 and he says, but 
God demonstrates his love towards us. And that all have sinned and are separated from the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God, before the foundations of the earth, knew that mankind would harden their hearts, rebel, and yet God created a rescue plan by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we couldn't live, to die a death on the cross on our behalf, and to rise again to offer us new life and adoption to God the Father. And that by repentance of sin, that's sorrow over our sin, asking God for forgiveness and asking him to change us and believing that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was the perfect son of God who came to die on our behalf, that by placing our faith and trust in him, that we are saved. And the beautiful part is that when you get to the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul says that he is convinced that nothing on earth created could separate us from the love that God demonstrated for us in sending his son to die and rise again on our behalf. Nothing. There is nothing that can be done that would separate us from God's love. Nothing can stop him because God chooses to love, and when God chooses to love and extend mercy, nothing can override that. And so we finished Romans 8 with just all this hope. And then two weeks ago, we entered into Romans chapter 9. And really what you see when you get there is just Paul beginning to extend this exalted view of God and what he's done for mankind. And he answers this question that says, well, wait a minute. God's people, Israel, seem to be rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They seem to be rejecting what Jesus claimed to be. They don't believe. And, and we're faced then, Paul's faced then with this question in verse six of Romans chapter nine. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so the point that Paul was pointing across to his readers is just because someone racially grew up Jewish didn't mean that they were an authentic follower of God. That that is not how it's worked from the outset. That I I, I made the comment a couple weeks ago that wearing green on St. Patrick's Day didn't make you Irish. And growing up Jewish didn't automatically make you a follower of God. Just like growing up in the South in America doesn't automatically make you a Christian. And so we see Paul pointing this across and he says, but that doesn't mean that God's promises have failed. On the contrary, It shows God's faithfulness to a group of people who did not even know him as God. And in the promises that he had made to the forefathers of of Jewish faith long before people were even walking the earth at this time, that the promises he had made to one day rescue those that were far off from him was now starting to come to pass as those outside of Jewish faith and culture were coming to know God as Savior and King for the first time. And so this left this question that was like, well, why did Israel reject Jesus in the first place? And that is what Paul answers in this text this morning. He answers this question, and I would say this, that the rejection of Christ is the error that all of us make, not just Israel. 
that the rejection of Christ as the Messiah is a universal human condition for those that don't know God and sometimes even those that do at times. So why do human beings in general refuse to submit to God? Look at verses 30 through 33 with me in Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, so here you have Paul saying, okay, look, I understand that thousands upon thousands of people outside of Israel are coming to faith in Jesus as Messiah and for the first time ever worshiping the true God. I get that. That is, that is happening now. How, how is that happening? Because they did not know God. They did not seek after God. They didn't know anything about God. They, they worshiped, you know, I, I joke about this all the time. My ancestors in Northern Europe were worshiping Thor and Bark. That's what they were doing, and maybe snow, I'm not sure. But that's what they were excited about. That's what my ancestors were worshiping. Some of you guys have ancestors that were worshiping Poseidon or Osiris, right? But that all of us have this this heritage, this background, this cultural background where our forefathers worshiped something. Our great-great-great-grandmothers and grandfathers worshipped someone or something. And for those that were non-Jewish, they were worshipping all sorts of stuff. And Paul says, yet now we see thousands upon thousands of people having the true God revealed to them in Christ. And we rejoice in that. And yet, it seems strange because the Israelites who knew the law, who knew who God was, who had the God of the, the Bible proclaimed to them from an early age and are oftentimes crazy, passionate followers of God and showing great zeal, yet they don't know Jesus. They've rejected him as the Messiah and the promised one that God was going to send. Why? And I want you to focus in on this. Look at what he says. He says, but, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Their hang-up wasn't the information that they were given. Their hang-up was how they approached that information to begin with. See, here's here's what they said, right? They they said, "We, we, we know who God is, and we believe we can appease him and appeal to him based upon our own performance. That we can appeal to the God and creator of the universe based upon our works based upon our knowledge, based upon what we know about him, based upon how we follow the Old Testament law. That is how we will earn favor towards God. And Paul says that they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, which just happens to be Jesus himself. That 
he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, and Isaiah 28, 16, and he says, If the Lord of hosts, excuse me, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Right? He kind of brings those two separate verses together in the book of, book of Isaiah. And what he's saying is, is that some in Zion, which is a term for Jerusalem or Israel, will be offended by this stone that God is sending. But those that believe and trust in the stone, Jesus, will not be put to shame. Meaning that what brings people to God is not a particular theology. It's not a particular way of thinking. It's not performance. It's a person. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul says Israel has rejected Jesus because he's a stumbling block to them because they are focused on their performance and not on what God has done. They're focused on earning God's favor, not receiving it from Christ. And he's gonna go in depth about that in verses one through four in chapter 10. Look at that with me. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Paul says, look, I I pray and desire that my fellow Jewish brothers and sisters would know Jesus as God and Savior. That they would know his power, that they would know his presence, that they would know the, the power of the work of the cross, the power of the resurrection and that they would know what Jesus is even doing now as he's still alive, seated at the right hand of God, interceding on behalf of those that know God as king. But Israel has a problem. That they have a zeal for God, but it's without knowledge. That they have a ton of passion, and they speak a lot about God, and they give the outward appearance of knowing God, but they are misled. Let me ask you guys a question. Is it possible for someone to be sincere about something but be very, very wrong at the same time? Absolutely. 100%, it happens all the time. How many of you guys have ever gotten into an argument amongst your friends and then been wrong? All of us. I got into an argument about three months ago about who uh, MVP of the NFL was for one particular year. And I was like, I would bet my house. Thank goodness, by the way, I didn't sign a contract because that person would be the owner of my house, but they'd also be the owner of my mortgage, I guess. So maybe I should have lost. Right, but when you are convinced about the truthfulness or something, you just become zealous for it. Right, like some of you Gator fans were convinced that the Gators were gonna beat the Georgia Bulldogs this past season. And you were like telling me about it. It's like, I'm telling you, the Gators can do this. I'm like, dude, I'm telling you right now, they can't. Right? I, like, I, I'm not anti-Gators, but it's just not going to happen. It's okay. It's okay to lose games, right? This past season, you lost a lot. It's all right. right? But, but some of you guys, you just convince yourself, no, like, we've been the underdog before, but there's a difference between an underdog and, like, unable to play against the other team. <laughs> And, and here it was, like Friday, it's like, I can't wait. Like, I'm going to head to Jacksonville tomorrow. It's going to be great. And the game was over within like two minutes. 
it was obvious really quick that there was a high school team out there and a college team out there. Some of you guys are really hurt right now. I'm just digging into that idol. Just dig. Right? And the reality is this. Is we get really zealous about stuff, but it doesn't make it true. And Paul is saying this. Look, Israel is zealous for God. They have all this passion. They have all this desire to know him. And yet, it's for naught because they don't know his son whom he sent. Right, like think think about this, right? Paul's going to share with us in verse 3, three ways that Israel messed this up. That Israel got this wrong after having so many advantages culturally and as a, as a, as a race, how they screwed this up. And, he, and he's going to say this. He's like, look, look at me with, at, at verse 3 with me, excuse me. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Three things that Israel does wrong. Right? The first one is this. They were ignorant to God's righteousness. Notice that he doesn't say they were ignorant to God. He says they were ignorant to God's righteousness. What he means by this is that they did not have a proper understanding of God's holiness and sovereignty. Meaning they knew who God was or they knew about God, but they didn't fully comprehend God is not like us. God is perfect in all his ways. That God does not listen to our opinions and we don't get to dictate how God operates. That God does as he pleases and we don't decide what that is. They did not understand that from the outset of their religion, God had been saving on the basis of faith, not works. That it says all the way back in Genesis chapter 20 that Abraham believed in God. And what does it say after that? That God counted it to him as righteousness. Doesn't say that Abraham earned righteous favor with God because of his performance and because of his great faith and because of his works and how he submitted to the law. It says that Abraham was saved because God knew that Abraham had faith in him and that God chose to save Abraham. That God chose to have mercy on him. That by faith, Moses trusted in God. That by faith, David trusted in God. That these bulwarks and these fathers of the faith for Israel constantly trusted in God, and that is why they were saved. If you, if you take a moment, right, because a lot of us struggle with this relationship between our performance and salvation and what God does. If God saves on the basis of performance, every hero of the faith in the Old Testament will be in hell. Guys, Abraham, the father of the faith, gave up his wife not once but twice, basically in prostitution. That's the father of the faith. David, a man in scripture called a a man after God's own heart committed adultery, and then had the husband of that woman murdered in war so that he could cover up his sin. That's a hero of the faith? Think about that. And what Paul is saying is that Israel did not understand 
that righteousness comes from God's mercy and grace and our faith in him to bestow it, not our performance. And so where did this lead them? This is what he says next. He says that they sought to establish their own, meaning they did not submit to God's righteousness but started trying to form their own way to earn righteousness before God. That even though God had always saved by faith, they rejected it and went their own way. Another way to say this is that they started trying to earn God's favor through their zeal and through their religious duties. And I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Israel was meticulous about religion. I doubt anyone in this room could even begin to match up to the way some of the devout Jews followed their religion. Think about just some examples of this over the course of the Bible. You have exact specifications on buildings and tents that are followed to the cubic inch. You have certain rules on what bread is allowed to be on the table and how to burn incense on the altar. You have rules on what to wear. Third Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9 up there for me. Right? You have this famous passage where, where Moses is basically giving this one final sermon to the nation of Israel. Look what he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And the, this is the part I want you to notice, starting in verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you guys have ever, like, come across really, really devout Jewish people, they wear scrolls that are tied to phylacteries that, that dangle from their head and from their wrists. Jackie and I stayed at a, a sta- lived in an apartment stayed. We lived in an apartment in Tampa, and the person that had lived there before us apparently had been Jewish because on the doorposts of our room, verses were written on the doorposts heading into our bedroom. That they took their zeal for God to such lengths that this is what they did. They, li- they, they literally had God's word would hit them in the face as they walked because of their zeal and detail to attention of what God's word says. And I would submit to you guys that many in America at least believe that they follow God with this level of zeal. We grow up in church. We attend Sunday school. We go to Bible study, we listen to our Christian radio, we read our Bibles, we pray, we serve the poor, we go on mission trips, we love people well, we try not to curse. We do a lot of really good things. And yet, Paul says that zeal will not save you. Just because 
something or someone appears to be spiritual or godly does not mean that you have it figured out. As a matter of fact, they may not. If anyone appeared to have it figured out, it was the Jewish Pharisees. They knew the Bible so well, they didn't even need the scrolls. They had entire books of the Bible memorized by heart. They were so meticulous in their, their, their scribal work when they would make copies of scrolls. If they made one mistake, they would burn it on the spot and start over again. This is how zealous they were for God. They had rules on how far they could even walk from the synagogue to their house on the Sabbath day so as not to work, so as to keep the Sabbath day holy. And yet, Paul says, they rejected the righteousness of God and went on their own way. Appearing to be for God, but actually being against him. And guys, hear hear my warning when I say this to you because my fear is that a lot of you in this room are like Israel. You claim or believe to have a zeal for God, but instead you have been working out a righteousness of your own accord. I grew up in the church. I knew some stories about Jesus. If you had asked me in my, in my late teens, early 20s, if I was a Christian, I'd have, I'd have probably said yes, maybe. If you'd asked me some things about Jesus, I could have given you details to them. But the reality was, is although I knew things about God, I had not submitted myself to the righteousness of God. And the danger is, is if we play this game of fooling ourselves and thinking that we're godly and that we have this zeal the way that Israel does, look look at what Paul says happens. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, read this last part, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. You know what happened to Israel? Not only did they seek to get to God on their own through their own performance, but in doing so, when Christ came and revealed their sinfulness to them and proclaimed to them, you cannot earn God's favor, but I have earned it for you, not only did they continue to try to walk their own way, but they refused to submit to God and rejected Christ. Because in their pride and in their selfishness and in their stubbornness, they had gone their own way and they only sought after what they believed to be true. Now it doesn't stop there. Because Paul basically says, look, it doesn't have to be this way. You may be sincere, but your misled zeal doesn't have to end in destruction. Your religiosity doesn't have to be the end of the story. It didn't have to be that way, and it doesn't have to be that way for Israel, and it doesn't have to be that way for us. Look at verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. He's basically saying this. You and I, 
no matter how good of a person we are, cannot earn God's favor on our own. We can't. It doesn't matter how good you are. I don't, I don't care how much money you give to missions. I don't care how old you were when you prayed a prayer to accept God. I don't care about your great-great-grandmother and grandfather who started First Baptist of whatever city you live in. I don't care how many VBSs you went to as a kid. I don't care how many times you've read the Bible through or how many verses you memorized in Awana. I don't care how many secular CDs you burned at Christian camp growing up. I don't care how many cheesy Christian t-shirts that are ripped off of some other major marketing campaign that we've used over the years. My favorite one's the Facebook one, like Jesus instead, right? With the thumbs up. Paul is saying this, it has always been upon the basis of faith in him that we are saved. And the end of trying to earn your way to God by works is here because of Jesus. How? Well, that's why we celebrate Easter. That's why we're here this morning. And I would tell you this, for those of you guys that call LA to your church home, we celebrate this every week. Because the reality of the gospel is this. This is why we celebrate. Jesus fulfilled the law for you and for me. That what you and I couldn't do, right, which is follow those rules to have those verses tattooed on our hearts and hanging from our frontals and on our doorposts and then following them perfectly, what you and I couldn't do and what even the most zealous of Jewish men and women could not do, Jesus did. That Jesus perfectly submitted himself to the will of his Father and did exactly what God the Father asked to the point of death, death on a cross. And on no fault of his own, suffered at the hand of wicked men. And in going to the cross, not deserving of death, he took on God's wrath for you and for me. The wrath that was pointed towards you for your sin and your rebellion and for my sin and my treason against God. Jesus took that wrath and punishment on himself. Our rebellion, our rejection, our zeal without submission, our passion without faith which led to treason and rebellion towards God. And as God's wrath was focused on us, Jesus goes to the cross and takes our sin on his shoulders. If, someone, if you ever ask somebody, why did Jesus go to the cross? I love asking people that question, especially people that, that claim to be Christians. I just say, well, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Uh, he was some sort of political martyr. The Romans were mad at him. The Jews were mad at him. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's part of it. But that was God using the wisdom of men and certain political climates to actually fulfill the Bible. Because Jesus said time and time again to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of wicked men and be raised again the third day. Because Jesus is the suffering servant promised in Isaiah 53. He's the long-awaited Messiah promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. 
He's the long-awaited blessing promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. He's the descendant and the seed of David promised to David who will have an everlasting kingdom and will rule forever. But in that, he had to fulfill the scriptures, which meant he must die on the cross for your sin and for mine. Two days ago, we celebrated Good Friday observing Jesus' death. And I always found it fascinating as a kid, why would we call the day that Jesus dies on the cross good until I came to know him? Because on that day, his death signified the payment for my sin had been paid in full. What are the last words of Jesus as he hangs from the cross? It is finished. He's not talking about his time on the cross, guys. He's talking about the payment for your sin and for mine. That the wrath of God was satisfied in that moment. All sin, past, present, future was paid for. And then as we come to church this morning, we come on Sunday because we celebrate that on Sunday morning as the female disciples went to the tomb to honor Jesus, it was empty because God the Father had risen Jesus Christ from the the dead to display to the world that Jesus was God, to affirm the scriptures that the Messiah would rise again, and to display as a sign once and for all that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for the payment of sins, past, present, and future. And now that he is alive, he reigns again in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf, and nothing happens without him allowing it to happen. And that one day, John promises in the book of Revelation, whether you do it this morning, whether you did it 20 years ago, or whether you never do it, one day at the feet of Jesus, every knee will bow to him. And so the question is, is will you know him as God and king now? Or will you do it in eternity when it's too late? Listen, most of us in this room have grown up in Western American culture. And there are some great things about that. But part of the problem with that is within that cultural framework, you and I are raised and brought up with an ethic to strive and work and own and perform and compete. I see it yearly as I meet new students who come into Gainesville with their 30 GPA and their perfect SAT score and we're involved in every extracurricular activity that their school possibly could provide. And they're high, high achievers and they get here and guess what? They're a high achiever like anyone else and they're competing with everyone else for that best internship, that best job. And it's perform, perform, compete, compete, compete. And then when you look at God, you think, I must earn God's favor. That must be how God operates and thinks of me. I want to work. I've got this. I can be a good Christian. I can do the right things. I can say the right things. I can pray the right prayer. I can read my Bible. I can help elderly. I can help the poor. I can give. You just 
add list upon list, thing after thing, and it just becomes exhausting. And Paul says, the righteousness from God does not come from your performance, but it comes from submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There is no other way. So here's my encouragement this morning. We take communion every week here at Aletheia. Every week. Every, every Sunday I get up here or one of the other pastors comes up here and preaches. And when we're done preaching, right, we offer you a time of reflection and worship. And it's very intentional. Right, we may not be your, your typical right, d- denominational old high church style with a, a really um, profound liturgy but we have a reason for the way we do things here. And we fundamentally believe that the word of God has an impact because it's alive and breathing and working within each and every one of us when we hear it. And so after we open up God's word and study it together, we offer a time of reflection, a time to come up and take communion. And when we say come up and take communion, what we're offering to you to do is before you come up and take that, you, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a professing follower of Jesus Christ, that by repentance and faith, you have trusted in Christ for your salvation in him and him alone, not on your own performance. That you would repent of any sin in prayer. And that you would come up here and you would take of the, of the elements, the, the, the bread and the grape juice. And you would do so not mourning over your sin or depressed, but worshiping because Christ willingly gave himself up for your sins. You don't need to mourn. You need to rejoice because Jesus willingly did that. And guess what? He's not dead anymore. We're not mourning a dead Savior. We're mourning a risen King. That communion is an opportunity to rejoice that what was broken on our behalf, has been raised to new life, and in him we have new life as well. That you can take communion rejoicing in what God has done for you. If you're here this morning, and you are not a Christian, first of all, thank you for being here. Second of all, it is not an accident that you are here this morning. I plead to you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. And the only way to be reconciled to him is through Christ. A good friend of mine, Jake Gregory, used to share this example on the, the relation of performance to God and the need for God's intervention to be saved. He said, if, if you're trying to get into a university and the, the demands of that university are a perfect 4.0 grade point average, that is the standard by which that university sets for admissions. And there is no curve. And you get one B in a class, can you get into that university? No. The standard is set, perfection. There is no way. You on your own could get an A plus in every class all four years of high school and not be able to make it into that university because the standard is perfection. 
And God's standard for his creation is perfection. And no one meets that. And once something becomes imperfect, it can't be made perfect again without supernatural interference. And in my friend Jake's example, he would say, God is like an admissions counselor who looks at your grade point average, says you don't meet the standard. I'm gonna extend mercy on your behalf and give you my perfect grade point average so you can get into this university. God looks on his creation and says, there is not one who seeks me, not one who knows me, not one who knows not my righteousness, not one who seeks my ways, not one who knows me as God. I'm gonna rescue them and provide the way. And he sends his only son, Jesus Christ, to make that way happen. And Jesus, who just wasn't some political martyr, wasn't some good teacher, wasn't some good moral leader, submitted himself to the Father's plan to the point of death on a cross so that your sins might be forgiven. And today, by repenting of sin, showing sorrow for what you've done wrong and coming to agreement that God's standard is the right standard, and believing that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, God's only son in the flesh who lived and died and rose again on your behalf, trusting him as God and king, you will be saved. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray right now that for those of you guys that are Christians here this morning, that you will never grow tired of hearing that good news because I need that reminder daily that God has done that for me. If you are not a Christian here this morning, I implore you, trust him. He's good. He radically changed my life. He's radically changed the lives of a lot of people in this room. And he wants to do the same for you. He wants to give you life. He wants to give you hope. He wants to give you purpose. But it only comes through his son. And the hope of the resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, there is none like you. Not one. If we leave here today with one thing, may it be an exalted view of Jesus, our God and our King. Heavenly Father, thank you that when we could not rescue ourselves and sought a way to make a righteousness of our own, you sent your Son to be righteousness for us. And that in him, you extend grace and mercy and peace. Father, if there is anyone in here who does not know you as God and know Jesus as Lord, I pray that you would convict them of their sin right now. That they would repent of that sin and that they would trust in Jesus right now. And that today would begin a lifetime of following after you and knowing why they were created, which is to be your son or daughter. God, might you save them. 
And Lord, for those of us in here this morning that already know you as God and King, please daily remind us of our need for you, of our deficiencies on our own, but our sufficiency in you. God, you are good. Thank you that we worship not just a crucified Savior, but a risen one. And may we never stop glorifying and exalting your name because of him. This is all because of you. We love you, God, and I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.